when it comes to exercise, our body really likes challenge and for us to switch it up when it comes to sleep, our bodies prefer consistency. Sleep and exercise, I think, are the two things to really nail down. And then, of course, finding ways to appropriately manage your stress. That looks different for everyone. Hello, and welcome back to the Your Great Podcast with your host, Unique Hammond. I'm excited for today's conversation with Barbie, the cognition dietitian who does a beautiful job educating about brain health and longevity of health for women in middle age. I've been following her and I absolutely love her content. I'm excited to have Barbie on the podcast, a registered dietitian, certified health coach, certified meditation teacher, cognitive wellness specialist, and optimal aging enthusiast. I'm very excited to have this chat today. Something new, something different. I have a lot of interest, not just in healthy hormones, but also in healthy brain aging. So this conversation is well-timed. I'm excited to jump into this today with Barbie. I also wanted to let you know that the waitlist is open for my January 12-week live bean protocol group. And I am currently offering, for those who are current clients of myself or my mentor Karen, group coaching. If you are interested, feel free to reach out to me and get more information, but it'll be ongoing as a way to just create more community for those on their high fiber love and life. Thanks again for joining me. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Barbie. Hi, it's nice to meet you. It's lovely to meet you. I have been loving following your Instagram and all the information that you're putting out for women of middle age, which, you know, it's funny to think about that. I, I don't even think about middle age. I think, oh, I'm going to be 48, but I guess uh -huh. that means I'm middle aged. <laughs> I mean, it depends. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah. yeah, I mean, we assume. So yeah, but thank you so much. It's lovely to be here with you. Thank you. And I really loved your live that you did with Dr. Annie Fenn. I've never really spent a lot of time talking to my community about brain health. Mostly I'm talking to them about healthy menopause and healthy body and healthy cholesterol and a low saturated fat diet and high legumes. I noticed that you're really about, and Dr. Fenn was about for brain health. So I'm excited to have you on to actually talk about brain health because I did notice before my mom passed that we definitely saw that dementia was kicking in. Thank you for being here to chat about brain health and educate my community about brain health. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I was also looking at your website, your registered dietitian. I've been practicing for 25 years. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Certified health coach, certified meditation teacher, cognitive wellness specialist, and optimal aging enthusiast. So you yeah. cover all the bases. I try to. Yeah. I, my focus is really, I mean, of course it's evolved throughout my career. It was always on women 
because when I was in school, I noticed that there wasn't much of a distinction in recommendations between men and women, with the exception, of course, of pregnancy, lactation. I was always very curious about that. And so I really wanted to find out everything I could about women specifically, because it just seemed obvious to me that we have different needs. <laughs> and of course, you know, now 20-ish years later, I think that's becoming more and more widely known, widely accepted, widely talked about, certainly with one. 1.1 billion women in in you know menopause in a couple of years i think it's time that we acknowledge the differences and attend to them so that's really what my work is about but specifically on women's metabolic health and brain health because they very much come into play in our 40s and 50s it's sort of a, i see it as a window of opportunity to really set us up nicely for our 60s and 70s and 80s and hopefully beyond well, I also think this is a conversation that we're starting to have, like you just pointed out, most research was around men. Yeah. And even most pharmaceuticals were dosed around men versus women. So we're slowly seeing the shift and it's kind of mind blowing that it's taken this long because, you know, <laughs> hello. <laughs> I, know. I know it seems absurd when you think about it. I mean, at the same time, Research is expensive, it's complicated, but it is unfair that men have been the focus because it it ends up not being appropriate for us much of the time. But it's starting. And with people like Dr. Lisa Moscone, particularly with brain health, you know, she's really spearheading a lot of sex-specific research for, for women. And it's just really important. So hopefully, you know, in 10 years, we'll know a lot more and be able to really thrive at this point in our lives. Cause I think that's so possible. You know, I, I, and I do think this is shifting too, but just the attitude of women kind of, I, I don't know, there are all kinds of connotations, just getting older and losing their spark and, you know, kind of becoming irrelevant and all the things that are sort of, in my opinion, mythology about women at this point in our lives. I personally have never felt better, been more excited about my life. And I know that's true of a lot of women. And I just, I hope that that spreads, you know? Yeah. I heard a 20 year old influencer say recently that she wasn't going to do Botox or fillers, but when she was 40, she'd get a facelift. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, wait, what happens at 40 that you need a facelift? Right. Um, exactly. <laughs> Well, good luck to her. I know. I was like, okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting, I'm like, I'm about to turn 48. I'm like, I'm not sure how I feel about that comment, but but yeah. Are there things that women in their 30s should start thinking about before they even hit that transition in their 40s? Like what should women in their 30s? Because I my the people in the community are from their 20s and some are in their 70s. So I have a broad range of women here. So I would love to give little actionable tools to to every age group, if you're open to it. What do you Absolutely. think? Oh, that's so fantastic because these changes that particularly in the brain that start happening that can lead to neurodegeneration, they begin decades before we're symptomatic. So it is not too early to start taking care of yourself in your 20s, in your 30s, and certainly your 40s. These changes are actively occurring. It's And it's not too late in your 50s or 60s or even 70s by any stretch, but 
it's in your 20s and 30s where you can really lay the groundwork for an extremely healthy brain in midlife and beyond. And so all the same rules apply that apply in midlife that, you know, to, to our younger years, making sure if there's one thing that all brain health experts agree on, you know, we can take different points of view when it comes to nutrition, but exercise is absolutely crucial. Moving your body, a combination of cardiovascular activity and strength training, both extremely important in different ways for the brain. One thing that is a real shame about people more, uh, women more our age is that, you know, growing up in the seventies and eighties and early nineties, we were not encouraged to strength train. It wasn't about being strong. It was about being skinny. And so we wasted decades just trying to achieve a thinner physique, which runs totally contrary to what we now know to be healthy and good for longevity. So strength train, ladies, strength train and get enough protein to support muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, I would say if you take nothing else away, make sure you're getting enough protein and you are starting to strength train or continuing that effort. But also cardiovascular activity is important. You know, there's sort of a narrative about trying to, I don't know, I almost think it's fear-based about cardio with women, you know, saying it messes with our hormones and and raises cortisol and so on. And, and it does raise cortisol, but <laughs> that's... That's not a bad thing in in the case of in the case of exercise, and it doesn't mess with our hormones. We really want to be sure that we are getting enough cardiovascular activity because that's what delivers oxygen and nutrients to the brain and helps promote BDNF, which is like miracle grow for the brain, brain derived neurotropic factors. So both are equally important. We want to make sure we're getting both, and then of course, don't forget about balance and flexibility. You know, more functional exercise because in your twenties and 30s, most of us, not all of us, but most of us balance pretty well. We're pretty flexible. As we get older, that becomes more of a challenge and it's really hard to get it back. So endurance, strength, balance, flexibility, I would say exercise is the number one thing. That said, sleep is very much right up there. And sleep can really become an issue in perimenopause, particularly with that decline in progesterone. So making sure you're really protecting your sleep, you know, get, having a regular routine, getting to bed on time, waking up around the same time, even on weekends, when it comes to exercise, our body really likes challenge. And for us to switch it up when it comes to sleep, our bodies prefer consistency. So sleep and exercise, I think, are the two things to really nail down. And then, of course, finding ways to appropriately manage your stress. That looks different for everyone. And then nutrition. I am a big, I mean, obviously, as a dietitian, I believe food and nutrition are extremely important. That said, I also believe that there are a lot of different avenues to good health. I don't think there's one specific set of rules that anyone needs to live by because the most important thing about nutrition when it comes to health is something that you're able to be consistent about. And if it's too restrictive or too off the mark in terms of your preferences, it's not something that's going to last. So sure, there are guidelines about what we know to be the most beneficial, but it also has to fit with your personal lifestyle preferences and and what's going to make you happy for the rest of your life, you know? Yeah. I mean, I talk to a lot of women where they have a really poor relationship to sugar. So they're over consuming sugar all the time, but it's their preference. So if their preference is something that is really detrimental for their long term health, then how do you balance that? If they're, you know, especially women, I find 
in in my age group, they're starting to get bellies. And one of the things that they'll say is, I love sugar. I love pastries. And you're just like, well, how do you create a mature relationship with something that can be, especially since we're already becoming a little more insulin resistant in this age, mm-hmm. how do you create a mature relationship with something that can be detrimental? Yeah, that's such a good question. And it's such a a thought provoking one, right? Because again, everybody's very unique in this way. Again, as you alluded to, we do have this very natural fat redistribution to the belly area, which can also make a visceral fat accumulate, which can lead to insulin resistance. So we do, uh, you know, this change in estrogen changes the way our bodies metabolize glucose and metabolize lipids. And so our, both our cholesterol and our blood sugar can be a little bit wacky in these years if we're not managing them appropriately. So of course it is important to establish a healthy relationship with foods that are more, I would say fun as opposed to nutrient dense, nutrient density, kind of making up a good, most, the majority of what you're consuming and then, but not completely depriving yourself of food that brings you joy. Because I believe personally that yes, food is fuel, it is nourishment, but it also is pleasure and it should be, we should be enjoying what we sit down and eat every day. But I think what I do with my clients, and again, it is very individualized because one person's relationship with sugar that they feel is problematic is nothing compared to somebody else's, right? So it all depends on what is, how are you are you using sugar as a coping method for for uncomfortable feelings? That's something that we have to address because that is never going to be a health promoting relationship with food of any kind. That could also be starchy, you know, salty stuff. That could be alcohol. That could be other substances. So anytime we find ourselves not really hungry, but reaching for something to soothe us or to relieve boredom or to handle an emotion, then we have to get super mindful and take a step back and really take ownership over what we're doing. And in my practice, that's a multi-step process. But just for simplicity's sake, I would say we work on being very, very mindful around choices when it comes to foods and beverages. I think the first step is taking full ownership, not allowing the compulsions to happen, you know, because that is a neural pathway and we need to unwind it. And I think that a lot of people get very, they give up too quickly (laughs) when it comes to behavior change, because if, if let's say that your favorite thing is chocolate chip cookies and you, you know, that you're not always hungry for chocolate chip cookies, but you're using them as a coping mechanism in your life for whatever reason, if you've done that over and over and over, say throughout your the last few decades, you've done that 20,000 times, it is ingrained in your mind. You probably don't even have to think about it. You're probably not even aware that you're doing it, going to the pantry and grabbing a handful of cookies. So now we've got to stop that process, take a step back, get super mindful, take full ownership. You can have the cookie, but you've got to say out loud, I am having this cookie and I'm not having it because I'm hungry. I'm having it because I'm bored. <laughs> and that's fine. You're in t- you're allowed, you're a grown up. You can do whatever you want, but but know, know what you're doing and take ownership of it. And then we start to kind of, you know, do all the mindfulness practices, sit down, no, never eat out of a bag or a box or a carton. Don't eat standing in front of the fridge. Don't eat standing in front of the pantry, your car, whatever, sit down, plate it. If you're going to have a snack, savor it, you know, don't just eat it mindlessly. So I would say we work on all of that. I know that was a mouthful, 
No, that but was great. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard work. It's hard work. But I would say mindfulness is the tool that I use for that kind of thing. Do you also find that clients undernourish themselves in kind of the desire to lose weight? Because I, I, you know, there is this rhetoric that in middle age, it's harder to lose weight. But when I start to dig into the literature, I, I don't know. I mean, is there a possibility of thyroid slowing down at this age? Yes, I believe there is, along with being more insulin resistant, potentially, as we lose the estradiol. But metabolically, if we're working out and eating well, is there automatically this idea that, oh, you're going to gain the menopause 15? No. Our current evidence, there was a giant study done in 2021 by Ponzer et al. that determined that our metabolic rate, our resting metabolic rate really does not change very much in men or women between the ages of 20 and 60. And that was kind of mind blowing to a lot of people, both men and women, because most humans do tend to gain weight in, the, in their middle years, men too. But according to this research, which is very well respected, also he wrote a book called Burn, which is a great book based on his research. If we are to accept that, that our resting metabolic rate doesn't really change very much, then it's other variables. We've got to look at these other variables. And I will say, and again, I've been doing this for a really long time. I've worked with my own body <laughs> for my whole life. And I will say that I, between the age of 47 and 50, I got to where I was 35 pounds outside of my comfort zone. Weight has historically never been an issue for me. I mean, all kinds of problems, weight was not one. And so it really surprised me and it felt like it crept up. Of course it didn't. You know, I had to take a step back and realize that what was happening was I was allowing my stress to get the better of me. There were some changes happening in my life that I was not managing as well as I thought that I was up here, but it was reflected down here the way that I was kind of mishandling what was going on in my life. So once I got a handle on that and really paid attention and became a detective, like, okay, where, where is this coming from? What am I doing differently? Because we always are, even if we feel like we're not, we're always doing something differently. Then it becomes a matter of committing, you know, and being really consistent and being patient. There is some truth, obviously, with a decline in, in estrogen, muscle mass declines, it can be more difficult to regain muscle mass. So yes, we have to work a little bit harder, but there isn't this dramatic drop in basal metabolic rate, like some people sort of think, or even like we used to think before this research in 2021. So the, the that was the very long, long way of saying, no, it is not inevitable. What typically happens is your lifestyle changes. You're less active, you're eating more, you're not sleeping well, you're stressed, something's going on that is causing that is causing weight gain and and it can be managed and 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 i'm curious if you see this that a, a lot of times in the desperation to lose weight women will stop eating the important things the like that anchor the diet like the protein and the vegetables and the healthy fats and then they're using these quick sugars to get energy from and it's have do you see that a lot Yes. Yeah, sorry. That was the first part of your question. Absolutely. Yeah. I see women changing their eating habits in a way that isn't going to benefit them. <laughs> you know, there's this, I don't know where this 1200 calories a day came from. It's insane though. I mean, that's what a toddler needs. It's not what a grown up needs. And 
you know, cutting out, I mean, trying to follow all the fads, keto, cutting out Mm. carbs, intermittent fasting, none of which is, you know, that works for some people. By no means do you need to adhere to any of that. There's a way to keep yourself, your body composition exactly where you want it to be in a way that makes you happy that you can do for the rest of your life. So absolutely, I see women not only undernourishing themselves, but doing things that are, could potentially in the future cause harm. I mean, if, if, gone, if gone on for too long, over-exercising, yeah. under-eating, and not getting enough nutrients. Yeah, the over-exercising, under-eating, that was definitely my 20s. You know, that's like, this is the way, <laughs> no bad idea, bad idea. Bad for longevity of health, right? Yes, and not feeling well. I mean, we can feel so good. And I'm not undermining the experience of a lot of women with perimenopause of it really feeling awful. I mean, some women, as you know, sail right through. Other women quite literally have a difficult time getting out of bed, uh, both physically, mentally, and emotionally. And so not undermining that at all. But if with some help, we, I believe we truly can feel better and even be healthier than we've ever been in our lives. I truly believe that. I agree. So for the person who's struggling with perimenopause, what would be your kind of tools that you'd recommend for them? Like, hey, if you're struggling with these hormone drops and your sleep is off and your weight and you're gaining weight, like what are some actionable steps they can take? Yeah. So I always approach a client from what I call the four pillars of of optimal health, nutrition, sleep, exercise, and managing your stress. So again, this is highly individual. Where do you feel like you are struggling most? Because any one of those can have a huge impact on the others. What I see most often is stress being the real culprit, because this can get in the way of good sleep. This can get in the way of time or energy to exercise. This can get in the way of good nutrition choices. So if sleep is stress is an issue, we really want to address that first. And that's going to look different for every woman, you know, as a meditation teacher, obviously meditation is sort of my go-to or breath work, you know, things like that, but that's not going to resonate with everybody. And, And it's a learning process, you know, being able to use those things effectively for stress. It took me years to be able to really fine tune that. It might be dancing. It might be taking a walk. It might be calling a friend. It might be playing with your pet. It might be raking the backyard. I mean, it could be anything that gives you, I try to say some take, get a list of three things that take three minutes that you do three times a day. That's kind of my go-to to to start filtering out some of those stress hormones and kind of reclaiming your energy and your time, creating boundaries for yourself and making it really important that you protect your energy because our energy can be very limited. And then we'll move on to sleep. I would say sleep is the next most important. If that's, if that's out of whack, we're just simply not going to have the energy to do all of the things that we can do for ourselves and it dysregulates appetite. So you're going to be hungrier for starches and sugars and, you know, coffee, you know, too much caffeine. I'm a big believer in coffee personally, (laughs) but it can definitely be overdone for sure. So I say we start with stress if that's an issue, then we move on to sleep, then exercise is crucial. And quite frankly, I know it may be a little strange as a dietitian, but nutrition is always last for me because I think that if any of those three other things are not in good working order, the nutrition, we're just not going to get done what we want to get done with it. So that's my personal approach. Obviously, I think nutrition is incredibly important. By no means am I saying it's not, but if 
we're not sleeping, we're not moving our bodies, and we're stressed out, it's going to be really hard to affect meaningful change in the area of nutrition. That's my personal. Uh, yeah, no, I understand that. I, and I think that there's been a wonderful highlight in the health space of the importance of sleep and, and light anchoring, getting that morning light in your eyes, getting the evening light to really signal to the brain that, hey, time for cortisol to come up, time for it to start coming down and for melatonin to come up. So these these practices are incredibly important and really being talked about now, which I think is beautiful. Yes. And the area of chrononutrition, which is just sort of emerging of this idea of being in alignment with our circadian rhythm, which kind of sounds woo, but it's not at all. I mean, you know, when you think of, I mean, this is, and we can see this in the research on shift workers, how they tend to be less metabolically healthy. When you're staying up late, snacking late into the night, you know, maybe sleeping too late or getting up too early, just not prioritizing this rhythm that you're, every cell in your body has a clock. And if we're constantly fighting that clock, our metabolism and our metabolic health is just not going to be in good working order. So that's a really exciting area of research. I'm really, I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes, because again, I think it's going to be something that's really individualized because we're all different in that way. But I think if we could learn to get in better alignment with that, like you're saying, the morning sunlight and, you know, some people go even so far as to make dinner super early in accordance with when the sun goes down. Do you do that? Yeah. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. It it's it it can seem, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, just a bit of a challenge with the lifestyle of most people. You know, if you're not getting off work until six, that can be really problematic. But if you have the freedom to really align your schedule with the sun. <laughs> I mean, that's probably a really good move. Yeah. Whenever my daughters are home from, you know, visiting they're grown, but when they're home, they laugh. They're like, you guys are like old people eating at five 30. And I'm like, yes, cool. Old people, <laughs> healthy old people. I mean, I, I really think that's going somewhere. I really do. And we do know that we are more insulin sensitive in the morning hours. And especially when a, when a client is either dealing with blood sugar regulation issues or weight or both, I do recommend that she try to get most of her calories in before say two or three and have an earlier dinner Ooh, um, like that. because that is when your body, it appears that that is when your body is going to utilize this, that energy that much better. So, which leads me to my question of perimenopause, perimenopause for some women, because women don't know when they're going to go into menopause, there's the average, right? Of like 52 or something like that. But you know, some women go into menopause at 47 or 45. How do you know when to start paying attention to your hormones? You know, because they, I'll talk to women who have their, they're in their late thirties and their period is already lengthening and shortening and kind of like moving all over the map. So how do you know when to start really preparing and treating yourself differently through the perimenopause years? And, or what do you recommend? Yeah, honestly, I don't, I kind of like with the health of your brain, I don't think it's ever too early because like you say, we never know when this is going to happen. A good indicator is when did your mother go through men, uh, menopause? That is probably our strongest tip, but perhaps your mother had a hysterectomy in her thirties as mine did. And so I have no idea. <laughs> and I don't know when my grandmothers went through menopause. So for me, it was a guessing game, but it's not unusual for a woman to go through menopause in her late 30s. For most women, though, it's more mid 40s. 
and it lasts about four to eight years. The average age of full transition in the United States is 51. So, you know, but that said, I don't think it's ever too early to be really well attuned to your body and its cycles and what ha- what's going on. Again, a lot of women just have dysregulated menstruation from the get-go. And so it can be really difficult to ascertain what's happening, you know, as things are changing. But as you mentioned, the first indicator most women usually have is the change in menstruation, is the change in the cycle. They get farther apart or they get closer together or they're spotting in the middle, which is, by the way, any irregular bleeding should always be checked just to be sure. You don't want to let that go on because it, I mean, most cases it's not anything serious, but you don't want to take a chance. So if you are bleeding irregularly, you should just go have it checked with your doctor. But that's usually the first indication. And then fatigue, the mood swings, the brain fog, all of that though is so that could be anything, right? I mean, that could be so many things, stress, anxiety, poor sleep, the nutrition, your nutrition. So menstruation is really a key indicator. And then of course, by the time you hit hot flashes, you're really pretty much at the tail end (laughs) of perimenopause. So there's all this in between time that stuff could be happening and you don't really know. There's no, you know, there isn't a test for this. I mean, some women do get their hormones tested, but it's, it's so erratic in perimenopause, as you know, you could test one day and things look perfectly, you know, norm premenopausal, and you could test a couple days later and you're flatlining. <laughs> so there's no real point in doing that. I mean, maybe as a confirmation, or I've seen it be useful if you are, say, in your 30s and you're wondering what's going on, because you know, that could be that could be useful information. But I would say it's never too early. Always try to be super in tune with your body, taking really good care of yourself. I mean, you know, there are so many illnesses or degree of illness, prevalence of illness that doesn't have to be. If we were taking care of ourselves in our 20s and 30s, many of us would not progress to midlife dyslipidemia, high blood pressure, insulin resistance, extra intra-abdominal fat, if we were thinking about it earlier. I did hear in in your conversation with Dr. Annie that uh, cholesterol is a big indicator. High cholesterol is a big indicator of of Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's a risk factor. Yeah, for sure. And that thank you for bringing that up because if I have one mission in life, (laughs) it's to get women to take their cholesterol seriously. And the reason for that is because over the years and still today, I see so many women with elevated LDL cholesterol and our cutoff right now is a hundred milligrams per deciliter, which is considered normal, but that is not optimal. Optimal is more seventies, eighties, low nineties. And that is probably going to change. That hundred is probably going to be dropped again in the next say 10 years. But, and this is absolutely no shade to primary care doctors, general practitioners. Many of them are not up to speed on the importance of keeping that LDL nice and low. I often see women who have LDL cholesterol, maybe 110, 120, And maybe their HDL looks nice, you know, it's over 60. So their doctors are saying, don't worry about it. This is outdated advice, no matter what, even if your HDL is nice and high, which we now realize may not be as protective as we once thought, that LDL needs to be attended to. We really 
And you need to know your family history. What other risk factors do you have? Because we might want it more like 70 as opposed to 100. So yeah, that. thank you for bringing that up. It's really important to, to address that LDL because it leads to cardiovascular, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which is our number one killer. And it is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Well, I see these protocols out there, not to throw shade, but like autoimmune protocol and stuff like that, where you have this high saturated fat, animal fat diet, and then they're using coconut, which is also high saturated fat. I mean, isn't that just a recipe? Is that not a recipe for disaster? I mean, it is in terms of your cardiovascular health and your brain health, for sure. When it comes to autoimmune disease or food allergies, I have seen a more meat-based approach be beneficial initially, like short-term, just to kind of, because a lot of people do react to plant foods, especially gastrointestinally, but maybe in other ways as well. This should not be a long-term protocol. It should be something more like an elimination protocol where you get rid of things and see what's bothering you and, and eventually add everything back in to see where the sensitivity is. But yes, anything, any diet, that is excessively high in saturated fat, we want to be super mindful of, especially in midlife, because that's when our LDL cholesterol gets wonky anyway, because of the, the erraticism and ultimate decline of estrogen. And if we're consuming a lot of saturated fat on top of it, yes, that is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> well, it's a tool. Well, I think of things like that as a tool. And you made a yeah. good point. It's like low FODMAP is a tool, but nobody should live on a low FODMAP diet because you've eliminated Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, it's, this, it's bonkers to me. I'll meet somebody and they'll be like, oh, I've been on the low FODMAP diet for two years. And I'm just like, whoa, you're missing out on all of these important nutrients when something was supposed to be a two week or a month protocol or something ends up being two years. Yes. It's supposed to be an educational tool, like you yeah. said, to learn about your body, see what's bothering you, but ultimately be able to add things back in and and, and not be on this protocol forever. The, the thing about these diets, carnivore, keto, et cetera, the, I mean, there are a lot of things, but the main thing that is problematic is you're missing out on fiber and fiber is so crucial. I know you know that. I know you don't. <laughs> that a lot. It is so crucial for metabolic health, brain health, overall health, gastrointestinal health. So we don't want whatever we're doing, whatever we're choosing, we don't want to be missing out on fiber. Yeah. My mission is in life is for people to stop demonizing beans and to actually eat them. And I, and I love the movement. You know, I would say that over the last 10 years that I've been working with a high fiber diet, is that vegans tend to be the biggest allies in that area because the doctors who are doing research on how important fiber is, not just soluble fiber, but dietary fibers of all types and resistant starch. And, you know, to see kind of the demonization of these important foods was heartbreaking because how do you demonize a food group that actually helps you live longer? Well, I know, but I, I think that people just have to have something to talk about. They like to be contrary. It gets them attention. It makes the money. And that's all there is to it because there isn't any science behind it. I mean, they make it sound like there is, but there really is not. And so, you know, the whole, I, I'm not sure if you heard this part, but Dr. Fenn and I did go over sort of anti-nutrients, lectins, oxalates, phytates, and whether or not we really need to worry. And the law, the short of it is no. <laughs> we really don't. And, you know, the benefit of eating lots of plant foods far outweighs any issues that might arise from, quote, anti-nutrients. 
Well, yeah. And you could look at polyphenols as an anti-nutrient because it binds up heme iron, right? So this thing that's actually really important for brain health and human health, you could actually, if you were really going after anti-nutrients, you could cut it out because it blocks iron, right? And women in their menstruating years are oftentimes iron deficient or their ferritin is low or yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think anytime someone is speaking in extremes or calling foods toxic or really, you know, using phrases like what they don't want you to know, you know, kind of stuff, it's, it's, you know, take it all with a giant grain of salt or maybe just scroll by because. But it, well, I think it is fear mongering, which I think is the most sad thing in the social health space is the fear mongering around right. perfectly healthy and good foods. I did want to ask you, what is your least favorite false news in the health space? <laughs> oh, wow. Do you have an hour? That's the whole hour. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. I, I think... Top boy, five. <laughs> Top four. You know what I think? I think it would be this, because there are a lot of uh, several books out uh, in the perimenopause, menopause space on this right now is the insistence that women should be fasting and doing keto. This Thank weird you. combination of restriction and deprivation and nonsense that it has no evidence behind it whatsoever. And, but there is this huge, I think there are, there are three books that I can think of right now. And I think there are more than that by very popular. Um, well, two of them actually are MDs. One calls herself a doctor, but she's a chiropractor and, you know, just really pushing this narrative of fasting, you know, and a ketogenic diet. And it's totally unnecessary. It really frustrates me because I have seen women become disordered from this type of information and trying it and feeling badly because they can't continue it because it's too, too difficult. It, it messes with women's minds and certainly their health. So that would, I think that would be it. Yeah, the yeah. intermittent fasting, I, I know who you're talking about, he, she who shall not be named, but the, <laughs> the Although she's getting her name out there big time right now. Yeah, and you know, and I read the books. Like I'm I'm my love language is learning. I love to to understand and to broaden my horizons continuously and learn from anybody I can. And I just remember reading that book, looking at it, going, you know, there's not only restriction here, but then there's keto and women's bodies need such a so much support to have healthy hormone production and nervous system that I, I can't imagine that starving yourself doing a 16-8 or, you know, an 18-6, like I'm a big believer in breakfast. I'm a big believer in not having fasted workouts personally. I just think we need support. I agree wholeheartedly. I, I, always encourage breakfast. And, and I don't, and by that, I don't mean rolling out of bed and having, you know, a <laughs> spread. I mean, a morning meal, you know, after yeah. you have time to kind of wake up, get your juices flowing. I think it's a great idea. We've got lots of good research that, especially if when we include protein, 20, 30 grams of protein at breakfast, we're set up so much better for the rest of the day in terms of energy, blood sugar balance, all of it. So yeah, I'm a big believer too. I, I'm just about including, you know, what, what can we include as opposed to you know, focusing on what we need to eliminate? Agreed. In your conversation with Dr. Annie Fenn, you talked about how the APOE4 gene for dementia and Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, and then dementia, I believe that's the way it goes, that it, it's a, it's a risk factor, but it isn't that your epigenetics, your lifestyle and your stress are actually the biggest. So even if someone like me, I've had my genetics tested, I don't have the genes, 
But it doesn't mean that I couldn't create that problem later down the road. Is that correct? Yeah, there are lots of risk factors for Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia, all forms of dementia. Alzheimer's is just a form of dementia. Many risk factors, unfortunately. ApoE, the, carrying the ApoE4 gene is just one of them. Okay. And you can carry one or two copies. One copy is about a two to three times risk, increased risk. Two copies is about an eight to 15 times risk. But as she was saying, Yes, your epigenetics plays a huge role here. You know, you can kind of um, quiet down that gene. And she was talking about this southern region of Italy, where if you carry ApoE4, you are not any more at risk than someone who doesn't. And that entirely has to do most likely with lifestyle and nutrition. But here in the United States, it's the risks that it's the level of risk that I talked about, but it is no by no means deterministic. There are three genes that are deterministic for Alzheimer's disease. If you have them, there is, I mean, it is very, very likely almost certain that you will develop Alzheimer's, but you would know it because you'd see it in your family and it's early Alzheimer's. So under the age of 65, carrying ApoE4, you know, diagnosis is 60s, 70s, but Many people who don't carry ApoE4 do go on to have Alzheimer's and vice versa. People who carry ApoE4 never develop the disease. So taking good care of yourself, using all of the methods that we currently know, and hopefully we'll find out more and more and more, has a major impact on your genetic risk. But if you do have your alleles tested, and it turns out you have one or two copies of ApoE4, there is a set of guidelines for you. So it's not that all hope is lost by any stretch. You know, there you want to pay extra attention to your cholesterol, your blood sugar, your intra-abdominal fat, your exercise, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's really great. I'm I'm happy to hear that because I do think that, you know, when the breast cancer gene was discovered, everybody wanted to remove their breast who had it, right? And it's just because we carry a gene doesn't mean that that's the ultimate evolution of the gene. Right. Not at all. Yeah. So we talked about fasting, which I definitely wanted to hit on because I, I think it's such an interesting kind of fad that's going on. Yeah. And I will say I have had clients for whom it's a great tool for them. They love it. It's working really nicely. And I, I would never try to talk them out of it. What I'm talking about is women who, who don't want to do it or struggle with it, who have a history of disordered eating. It is not appropriate for them. And it's by no means something anyone needs to do. If it works for you and you dig it, then have at it. What I do recommend though, if you enjoy intermittent fasting, like you like your eight hour window or whatever it is, do shift it to include breakfast. I think that you would probably notice even more benefit if you were, instead of going noon to eight, if you were say going, I, I don't know, 10 to four or mm -hmm. nine, you know, nine to four, sorry. Do you know what I'm saying? So we are get, taking advantage of that insulin sensitivity earlier in the day. And I also like to say, and this has nothing to do with any fasting theory, but finishing up eating about two hours, two to three hours before going, hitting the pillow, just because digestion and sleep are two major processes that you ask your body to perform and they don't do either one. Your body doesn't do either one. Well, if you're asking it to do both at the same time, so you digest better. If you let the heavy lifting of, of digestion happen before bedtime and you sleep better if that's out of the way. So just to make that point. I agree. I've been doing the eating all morning. I'm usually done eating by 
five, five thirty, and then have a three hour window or longer before bed and then try to get like a 12 hour fast overnight. The, the thing that I find interesting is that there's these people out there that are saying there's all these longevity benefits of fasting, which I don't know is backed up by any real science, but is the main mechanism behind fasting potentially that you are just in calorie restriction and that's why you're losing weight? In terms of fat loss, yes. There's okay. no long-term difference um, between intermittent fasting and calorie restriction in terms of fat loss. Mm -hmm. So there's that piece of it. Then the other metabolic benefits like improved blood sugar or LDL cholesterol or any of that, that may have to do with fat loss if you've lost weight or improved your body composition by also strength training, you know, creating a bigger reservoir for glucose by building muscle mass, any of the longevity benefits, they, we don't really have that in humans. We've had it in, I believe, I want to say mice and flies, which you can't, you can't pull that data and say that it has the same benefit in humans. And I think I want to say that there was something that demonstrated some benefit after, I want to say it was 36 hours of fasting or something, but nobody's doing that. Nobody should do that, you know? And I, I hesitate to even say that, but I know that there is something out there about a really extended fast, but there's such a contraindication because that would not be a health promoting lifestyle. So it's complicated. I would say, no, we don't really want to be thinking about the longevity benefits. It's more, if this is a kind of structure, if that structure works for you and you enjoy it and it doesn't feel stressful, do it by all means, but it's not anything anyone needs to do. There's nothing magical about it. Yeah. That's, that's what I thought I understood from everything I gathered is that it, it, that it wasn't a magic. It was potentially for weight loss, a calorie deficit because you're shortening your window. But then I also saw people say like, oh, well, yeah, but if you're eating, you know, 3000 calories in that short window, then you're back to where you started and you're probably not going to lose weight. So it's just whether or not. Yeah, exactly. It only is going to happen if mo what most people are doing is they're eliminating a meal. Right. And so, yes, if that's like three to 500 calories a day that you're eliminating, yeah, you're going to, that's going to be pretty successful, but that's all you've done. So there's a whole entire group of people out there that demonize nuts. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, nuts are one of the very best things you can eat for your brain. I mean, all the vitamin E, and then we've got the fiber and it's got a little bit of protein and they're really satisfying. I mean, yeah, all good stuff. I don't, I'm, I'm not buying that one. <laughs> seed oil, seed oils is a big one. We know a lot of big influencers oh, out there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a really, really unfortunate one and is, is entirely a product of social media fear mongering. There's no good evidence behind it. Now, nobody's suggesting that you go out and drink a bottle of canola oil, but there is no good evidence that they are inflammatory. And it does appear that when they replace saturated fat in your diet, they are cardioprotective. Now, some of the research that didn't show that benefit was when carbo refined carbohydrates were the replacement. So if we're replacing re saturated fat with refined carbohydrates, no, we don't see a benefit. But when we replace saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats, we do see a benefit to cardiovascular disease risk. So what are your thoughts on organ meats? All the people that are eating a lot of organs. I mean, not my preference. <laughs> um, so I, it's not part of my repertoire. 
I would say be very mindful of the saturated fat. You know, we want to be trying to keep our total saturated fat intake to less than 10% of our total calories, less than 7% if you're at risk for heart disease or it's already begun. So if you can have some heart or some spleen and it fits within that, you know, seven to 10%, I mean, have at it or liver or whatever, but I certainly don't think it's anything anybody needs. I'm always fascinated by with all the liver eating is, isn't there a, because we store vitamin A, isn't there a possibility of vitamin A toxicity? Sure. That liver? Yeah. And I have had clients who have actually reached that because they love pate. Mm. And so, yes, I have had only a few, but I have had clients who have had vitamin A toxicity because they just couldn't get enough pate. So, <laughs> so it absolutely can happen. So that's something to be mindful of as well. I see some of these trends and, you know, I, I definitely, my parents raised me, I would say if anything more in the Weston A price, kind of like eating the whole animal and raw milk and all that stuff. So I moved away from it in my twenties, but it was really this idea that saturated fat on a high level is really good for you. And I think there's this misunderstanding that it creates some sort of cell flexibility. Have you heard that? Like, oh, it's making your cells more flexible when you eat all the saturated fat. When in fact, I think a saturated fat is saturated. No, we don't, we don't need saturated fat for cellular structure or flexibility. Really the only fat that we need, like truly, truly need is omega-3 fatty acids. Now we do need omega-6 as well, but we, it's not hard to get, you know, enough omega-6. It's, it's in nuts and seeds and, and many meats and certainly ultra processed foods. That's the food that, I mean, I think that that may be where the whole hysteria around omega-6 fats came from is that they are typically used in ultra processed foods because they're less expensive, more shelf stable, but it's not the fat, it's the whole package. Right. <laughs> but no, the only fat we actually, the human body actually needs to consume on a regular basis is omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6. Omega-6, most of us do not have an issue getting. It's the omega-3s that we want to prioritize. That said, monounsaturated fats are appear to be anti-inflammatory. So that would be the number one choice, olive oil, avocado oil. There is a lot of monounsaturated in nuts and seeds, although they're mostly poly. But yeah, but no, we don't need saturated fat. We don't. So there's no benefit. So for anybody listening who's on a high saturated fat diet, with coconut oil and dairy. And so there is no benefit to having saturated fat in your diet at, at a high no, level? No, there really isn't. It's There's no harm in having a little. So it's not like we have to be afraid of it or worry about it. We definitely want to be mindful of it and minimize it if we are concerned about our cardiovascular health and our brain health. But um, it's not something to be fearful of, but it's not anything we need to consume. So if somebody's an omnivore, it's better to stay with the lean cuts versus yeah, the fatty sure. cuts. Okay. And I love cook it. with olive oil, avocado oil. Those would be the two top choices. And avocado being more useful at higher temperatures and olive at lower temperatures. I love it. You're preaching to the choir over here. I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to hear it. <laughs> it's like, fun yeah. to talk to like-minded people. I don't mind a good challenge every once in a while, but it's it's also good to commiserate. Well, I also like knowing that, you know, everything I'm reading is confirmed. This is your field of study. And, and, and I love hearing that feedback because I, it's important to me to age gracefully, to age well, to do everything I can to have a healthy menopause at, when it comes. It was only at 47 that I started to feel the shift and, and it was, it was in body composition where suddenly 
I went and got my blood work done and my blood pressure had shifted, you know, and I was eating the same. I just had to change. I started changing my workouts and focusing more on protein and weight training. And then things went back to normal. But had I not been paying attention, you can see how you can just slide into a ditch without knowing it. Like it's scary. Absolutely right. And th- I'm so glad you brought that up. Dr. Fenn and I did talk about this a bit. One of the things I say, and like I said, in, in that little chat we had is that it is important to become a good patient in your middle years, because I, you know, something else I said is that I like to see cholesterol, A1C, blood pressure taken at least annually. Now that is not the general guideline. The general guideline is something more like every two or three years. I don't think that's frequent enough for women in midlife because I, in fact, I just saw it this morning. I had a client this morning last year at this time, her LDL cholesterol was 95. She, it is now 110 one year and she hasn't changed anything except that she is further into perimenopause. So I do think, and an exposure time matters with high blood sugar, high blood pressure, high LDL cholesterol. So hopefully your insurance will do at least an annual, you know, pay for annual lab work. If it, if it doesn't, there are co-ops where you can get discounts, you know, you talk to your doctor, but I just think it's important for midlife women to have these numbers checked annually, at least. I do too, because I I feel like the power of blood work is the trend, watching the trend versus if you get blood work once or twice in your life, you have nothing to know where your starting or end point is. And, you know, it is expensive, but I feel like allowing our health to decline unknowingly because a lot of these things don't have symptoms. Right. No, they're silent. And that that is the thing. Our metabolic health until it becomes a really big problem is silent. We don't know we have high blood pressure or high blood sugar or wonky cholesterol. So that's why it's we're pretty aware if we are accumulating excess intra-abdominal fat, but we're not aware of how what that looks like on the inside. So having that checked annually is is really a step in the right direction. Yes, it costs money, but so does medication, so does illness. I was ill for three years and I spent all of my savings in doctor's visits and everything that I had to do. And it made me realize that being proactive and dedicating to health is a way better way to go and cheaper way to go in the long run. Yes, it really, in the long run, it 100% is. I think that, you know, you said in the very, asked in the very beginning, you know, what can younger women do? It's, it's, it's that start paying attention to these things now. And what I also, I'm also huge about self-advocacy in the, in the, your doctor's office, your provider's office. If you have someone who is not hearing you about getting your labs done annually, listening to you about perimenopause symptoms, you know, something else Dr. Annie and I were talking about was that hot flashes, not all hot flashes, not the hot flashes that most of us get, but really intense, frequent sweating, really getting red, you know, significant night sweats where you're changing your clothes. This has a link to Alzheimer's disease and certainly cardiovascular disease. So, I mean, they're associated, don't quite know how, but probably because it means on a low level vascular disease. So that's a, that's a symptom to mention. And if your doctor is unaware of the research or if they dismiss it, might be time to find somebody who listens. I think that we can, I've had many clients who've had the same doctor for 20 years. You have different needs now. There's nothing wrong with switching it up and moving on to somebody who really gets you at this stage in your life. A hundred percent agree. And and also we're not talking about men today, but I will say for men, like my husband was having night sweats and I was like, go get your blood work done. He's 55. He did. And his ApoB was high. His cholesterol was high. His blood sugar was out of range. 
he definitely had a different diet than I did, but that scared him into action. He changed his diet. He's no longer sweating through the sheets every night. He was just like, oh, I don't know why I'm sweating through the sheets. And I'm like, yeah, that's a sign that things are not good. That's right. Yeah. We have to pay attention to ourselves. And, you know, we're so, it has a lot to do with our culture too. We're so productivity driven, just forget it. Like just, it's all about, let's just, you know, get stuff done and be really productive. We need to take a step back and pay attention to ourselves because we don't need to have all of the illness that we have. And part of it is that we are just trying to motor through and we're dismissing ourselves, let alone being dismissed in, in, you know, a provider's office. So we need to get on it and pay really good attention to ourselves and take really good care of ourselves. And it's never too early. Yeah. And your four pillars really covered off the nourishing food, the quality sleep, the daily movement, the stress skills, keeping that cortisol from overtaking the entire endocrine system, you know, on a regular basis. I think these are such important, actionable steps to start thinking about. So thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. I know that we missed each other a bit. So I, but I was like, okay, this is happening and I'm really excited. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you. It's been really fun talking to you. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. And um, thank you for everybody. Where can they find you? Is Instagram the best place to find you? I love your Instagram, by the way. So thank you so much. Yeah. The Cognition Dietitian on Instagram, but then also my website is barbiebowles.com. And so you can connect with me through there as well. There's a lot of wonderful information just across the board on Barbie's Instagram. I've enjoyed taking it in and learning. So definitely go check it out. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Barbie Bulls, the cognition dietitian. And you got as much out of it as I did, really contemplating my brain health, my heart health. As a woman in her perimenopausal years, I am noticing the shifts that are naturally happening and I eat well, like it's kind of crazy. So if you are struggling, know that you are not alone. And if you are young, contemplating menopause and perimenopause doesn't make any sense because you're thinking about fertility and having babies, know that now is a wonderful time for you to start contemplating your long-term health. So have a wonderful day, night, or wherever you are in this beautiful world.